0: Hey, what's up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for checking out this week's Top Docs Radio Show. As you know, over the past year, a little over, we've been working with the Medical Association of Georgia. They've been joining us for the longest time on a monthly basis. And now more recently, we've begun having them come in twice a month to share some insights that will benefit both the physician practices around the state of Georgia, as well as patients to help them be better educated about the changing landscape legislatively that is affecting healthcare and how it's delivered in our state. Back in September, I interviewed former cardiologist and now expert in compliance, utilization review and documentation, Dr. James Dunnick, as we were preparing for the impending implementation of the new ICD-10 coding system. In that conversation, he made a remark that really struck me at the time and is one of the reasons why I'm very glad to have this week's guest talking to you. As we were discussing the rate of compliance with documentation requirements for reimbursement among these hospitals and physician practices around the country, he said That in almost every practice and hospital he walks into, he could put almost every one of them out of business based on inaccurate or incomplete documentation of the diagnosis they made, as well as the treatments they delivered or prescribed, pointing out the fact that in most cases, it was accidental or just not fully understanding the requirements for the documentation to get themselves paid and be able to show proof when demanded that they correctly diagnosed and documented what they were seeing and what they were doing about it. Thereby avoiding reclamation of the funds that they were paid, as well as the heaps of penalties that they would pay, both civil and even potentially criminal. Fast forward to this week, and I was joined by two attorneys whose practices each respectively focus around fraud in healthcare. Scott Grubman is a partner with a law firm of Chilavis, Cochrane, Larkins, and Beaver here in Atlanta. He represents healthcare providers of all types and sizes with government investigations, audits, false claims act and other complex litigation and various regulatory and compliance matters. Prior to joining private practice, Scott served as a trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and as an assistant U.S. attorney in Savannah, where he served on a district health care fraud task force. He serves as an adjunct professor at Georgia State University's College of Law, where he teaches a course in healthcare fraud and abuse. And Jason Marcus, who is among a select group of lawyers who devote their practice to key TAM and related retaliation claims under federal and state false claims. James He's practiced FCA law exclusively since 2008, and he formed the firm of Bracker and Marcus in January of 2015 with partner Julie Bracker, who is dedicated to representing whistleblowers nationwide. Clearly, these two gentlemen are subject matter experts on the topic of healthcare fraud, and I can assure you, you're going to want to stick around for this episode because the information they share could just be the difference between staying in practice and not. So without further ado, here's Scott Grubman and Jason Marcus. Check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day again today, continuing our twice-monthly series with Medical Association of Georgia. Every second and fourth Tuesday, we have the folks from MAG and or experts that they interface with. And this week, we'll be hosting Scott Grubman. He's a partner with the law firm of Chilevis, Cochran, Larkins, and Beaver. And Jason Marcus is also from a law firm here in the Atlanta area as well. And he is with Bracker and Marcus. That's
1: right. Good to be here, CW.
0: These two gentlemen are experts as it relates to fraud in this particular case for today's conversation. And I know over time as the legislative climate has changed affecting healthcare, and as the finances around Medicare, for example, and funding Medicaid have become tighter and tighter and trying to manage to keep those plans alive, there's been ever-growing focus on the presence of fraud trying to root it out. And from what I understand, up until relatively recently, the brunt of the responsibility for that was borne heavily by the hospitals and health systems. But more and more of of late, that weight and focus is starting to fall more and more on the individual practice or group practices, trying to find out where and if there is fraud occurring in the practice itself and root it out and punish those who are guilty of such heinous crimes. And so these gentlemen here are folks that those types of clients would end up interfacing with, help them, one, avoid those things, uh, and then, of course, what to do in the case of some sort of situation arising where they may be asserting that fraud is occurring. So, gentlemen, thanks for taking some time.
2: Thank you. You, Thank we you. appreciate it. Yeah,
0: and for folks who aren't familiar, I'll start with you, Scott. Give folks a little introduction to your your practice, yourself, and and you know, your background.
2: Sure, absolutely. I am a, um, as you said, partner at Chilavis, Cochrane Larkins, and Beaver, which is a boutique law firm located in Buckhead. We are um, we do healthcare, white collar, government investigations, business litigation, and all other t- types of litigation and regulatory matters. Prior to joining private practice a few years ago, I was a federal prosecutor, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Georgia, based in Savannah, where I was on the health fraud task force for the Department of Justice and investigated and litigated matters involving health care fraud and the like. Prior to that, I was a trial attorney at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., uh, graduated from University of Georgia Law School.
0: And so now you're using that experience and and expertise from your background to be able to I guess in in this case you end up working on behalf of the hospital and on behalf of the practice
2: that's right yeah so I I took what I learned and I did for the government and now I defend healthcare providers of all types and sizes my clients range from individual uh, physicians to hospitals DME companies uh, long-term care facilities and other types of healthcare providers that are facing challenging situations such as government investigations, audits, audit appeals, um, other types of litigation involving reimbursement, things of that nature. Let me, let me say what, how I view my practice, and it's kind of following up on how you introduced it, although you introduced it absolutely properly. What I would say when people say healthcare fraud, even though this is the radio, so I'm not going to give my typical air quotes that I normally <laughs> do, but be careful when you think of fraud, yeah. because when people think of fraud, they think of the real intentional wrongdoing. Yes. A physician who's on the beach in Hawaii submitting claims for services that are not being rendered, purposeful overutilization of certain types of healthcare items yep. or services, and those things happen and i do represent clients who are alleged to have engaged in that behavior typically those types of things are punished with a criminal investigation and criminal prosecution and i do criminal inve- defense white collar criminal defense healthcare fraud and abuse defense however the vast vast majority of healthcare quote unquote fraud that's going on right now is in the civil arena when i think of healthcare fraud i like to describe it as healthcare non Compliance. I understand. Uh, lack, alleged lack of compliance with the myriad of regulations and rules that are out there from Medicare, Medicaid, Tricare, commercial payers, and again, the vast majority of what the government is going after. I'm not not to downplay the seriousness of it. It could be just as serious. However, it's not example. It's not intentional fraud. It's not what a typical person would think of fraud. So, for example submitting claims for MRIs or x-rays where maybe there wasn't proper supervision. There's no allegation whatsoever that the MRIs or the x-rays weren't done and weren't necessary, but Medicare and other payers have certain rules regarding physician supervision of those types of services in situations where a provider maybe isn't following those rules for supervision or things of that nature, that might be a situation where the government comes after that provider on a civil basis. Mm. And they refer to it as healthcare fraud, and that's what it's called. But I want to be clear that it's not all or even the majority is not intentional fraud as kind of the normal person might think of that.
0: I think that's an important distinction to be able to be made just because while this particular program is in association with Medical Association of Georgia, and it'll certainly be going out for consumption by the 7,800 members of MAG, obviously, uh, who are physicians. Many of the people who check out our show are not physicians. Uh, They come from just general community or uh, the business community that have an interest in healthcare topics. And so I think being able to talk about that and make that distinction, because as you say, when when you say the word fraud, it it, it, it implies you're up to nefarious Things.
2: Right. when people hear, and I'll be interested to hear Jason's take, because we are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to our, our practice, I'll let him tell you about his. But when people hear what I do and they, they read the description, I focus my practice on healthcare fraud and abuse, what they typically think is, oh, okay, great. Well, I don't commit fraud, but if I ever find out that I know someone who maybe did, I'll give them your card. <laughs> but that's not exactly, you know, that's not really who is calling me or emailing right. me for representation it's the folks who maybe didn't cross a t dot an I. Like a rack audit or something a like rack audit yes. a, a ZPIC audit a medicaid audit things of that nature so exactly or just a false claims act case that maybe jason or his firm might bring on behalf of the united states again maybe alleging very serious allegations, not to downplay the allegations, but not exactly what the everyday person might think of when they hear the word fraud.
0: Introduce folks to your practice, Jason, and uh, your background a little bit.
1: Thanks, CW. I'm a partner with the firm of Bracker & Marcus. We only do False Claims Act litigation. We represent whistleblowers in cases um, such as Scott just described. So i also a UJ Law graduate and uh, clerked down for a uh, federal magistrate judge in Savannah and uh, have been doing this false claims at work for about nine years now. So you had a couple cases with Scott. I don't entirely agree with his uh, definition of, of what we do. Now, his he was uh, speaking broader about what kind of uh, government complaints you might see. Um, the cases we would bring would not normally be cross your T's, dot your I cases.
0: They're bad guys.
1: Uh, they're bad guys. Huh. But then you fall into that gray area of is non-supervised MRIs, for example, you know, a bad guy. and our, you know, opinion, yeah, if you put, you know, pump some contrast through a patient and there's no doctor on site, that you know, there's a patient risk issue there. So normally our cases are, are one of two types. They're either fairly egregious fraud. Um, you know, our cases, I have no hesitancy to call our cases fraud, or there's some sort of patient harm, which usually is, you know, it has to be tied to a fraud. But if it's crossed your T's, dot your I's, and the patients are coming out in a worse position because of it, we don't hesitate to bring those cases.
0: Well, so you, you kind of come at it from a couple of different directions. One, Scott, you, you're able to help that group in that situation where, as you say, a lot of the times it is, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but a few weeks ago we were doing a conversation just ahead of the launch of the ICD-10 codes and talking about how much in terms of the... the the width and depth of of documentation that it was adding and how so many practices really hadn't gotten their EMRs and, and their practices up to speed and be ready to truly document appropriately according to the new regulations and the gentleman that was on the show that day He does consulting work. He's a physician by background, but he had become certified in uh, case management and utilization review and uh, compliance. And his comment, it kind of gave me a bit of a chill in the sense that he said, I can go into just about any practice and probably put him out of business on some of the things that you talked about, Scott, with regards to the the Ts and the Is not being dotted and crossed correctly, much less the the situation that you're talking about, Jason, where somebody's actually doing something nefarious. And he mentioned that around my my, my, my intro, where I was talking about the fact that there's more and more focus being placed on eliminating fraud or rooting it out wherever it is and increasing compliance with the laws um, that they are going to be increasing, I guess somewhat significantly, the number of people that that's what they do. They go out and they look for it specifically. It gave me a bit of a a concern in terms of how that's going to go if, as he was saying, just about any practice has made enough documentation errors that were simply that. They just didn't, they didn't follow the the procedure in terms of how they should document something such that they're at serious financial risk to get monies reclaimed are you what are you seeing in terms of trends down that path are you seeing the same sort of thing or, or is he being over dramatic
2: no I, I i agree with 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 him unfortunately 100 percent. i tell people often whether it's a hospital another type of healthcare entity or a, a physician practice group is unfortunately because of the myriad of regulations that are out there, and healthcare is by far, in my mind, the most heavily regulated industry, and maybe it should be. Um, I understand the policy behind that—that that you could basically go into any healthcare entity of any size and find enough issues if the government wanted to find them to have to cause really, really big problems. Um, there is an increase on. Government enforcement. The mm-hmm. government has increased the resources it dedicates to fighting um, or investigating allegations of healthcare fraud and abuse, both the Department of Justice, and that's the entity, the agency that's in charge of False Claims Act and um, criminal healthcare fraud investigations, as well as the Office of Inspector General or the OIG, which is the law enforcement arm of HHS that's in charge of investigating allegations of healthcare fraud and abuse. There has been a tremendous increase in resources over the last few years dedicated to healthcare fraud and abuse. It is one of the, if not the, number one priority of the Department of Justice right now, and I could tell you that Uh, with personal knowledge, because I was with the Department of Justice, and I know that um, absolutely to be true. The government can tout statistics like the following. I heard this the other day at a CLE, that for every dollar that's spent uh, investigating and quote-unquote fighting healthcare fraud and abuse, they collect something like seven or eight dollars back. And with a statistic like that, it's something very easy for them to go back, you know, Congress there's no way that anyone's going to try to stop this gravy train. And that's what it is, a gravy train. Now, not only has there been an increase in enforcement, but there absolutely has been, like you mentioned at the beginning, an increased focus on individuals and smaller groups. It used to be the case that the majority of investigations were focused on larger entities. And the reason was very simple. They're the ones with the deep pockets. If you're going to spend the money to investigate, you want to go after the big guys. I'm not using any particular examples, but you know the tenants, the HCAs, the, the right. big hospitals, the big corporations, the Vita, things of that nature. There has been an express policy implemented at the Department of Justice now where there is going to be an increased focus on individuals there is an increased focus on individuals in fact the um woman who was the united states attorney for the northern district of georgia up until very recently sally yates is now the number two at the justice department she's the deputy attorney general of the united states she put out a policy memo called the Yates memo, which specifically, it wasn't specific to healthcare, but that's where we're really seeing the effect of it mainly, specifically said the days of the government going after the big guys and letting the individuals walk with no consequences, those days are over. And there will not be an investigation now that doesn't include Culpable individuals, and in healthcare, that either means the healthcare executives or the physicians. So there really is an increased focus. The OIG, as well, um, sometime last year, I think it was last summer, announced that it was forming an entire, entirely new unit, hiring a number of new attorneys to focus exclusively on the OIG's administrative remedies against healthcare providers, which include civil monetary penalties which include uh, possible exclusion. Civil monetaries and exclusion, forgetting about the False Claims Act themselves could be devastating. In the situation now is that, for instance, if the government brings a False Claims Act case, besides recovering the money that may have been paid out as damages in the False Claims Act case, they are entitled to claim penalties of up to $11,000 per claim. And you think, for anyone listening in, and, and and we all know sitting around the table, a typical healthcare entity, even of modest size, submits a lot of claims yeah. per year. Sure. So if you have a situation where it turns out that you weren't following some rule or regulation for a couple of years, and you submitted thousands and thousands of claims you know, with that problem occurring, then you potentially have a very, 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 very large problem. And then on top of that, you have the potential to be excluded from federal healthcare programs. Now in my industry, we call exclusion the death penalty. And although that's a very dramatic term, that's what it is. If you get excluded from Medicare, you will be excluded from Medicaid. If you get excluded from Medicare and Medicaid, Commercial insurance companies will kick you out of their networks. No hospital will hire you. No nursing home will hire you as their medical director. So these are the things that now the government are really focusing on. And it was similar to the phenomenon we saw in the banking world with the banking collapse and, and back in 2007, 2008, was that what the government started realizing is just taking large amounts of money from big institutions, no one really cares. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing. It's not until you go after the actual decision makers on an individual basis when that conduct actually stops and the people who are responsible for that conduct actually realize they might be held responsible for what's going on. So that's kind of what's in the government's mind. That's why there's an increased focus. And absolutely, I agree, unfortunately, with your prior guest that you opened, the government could open the door to any healthcare provider in the country and probably find enough issues to put them out of business if they really wanted to.
0: We've been talking with experts on the subject of fraud in healthcare. Scott Grubman, attorney with Ch- Chillavis Cochran Larkins and Beaver and Jason Marcus of Bracker and Marcus. And learning about some existing trends and they're, they're leaning in the direction of closer and closer scrutiny on behalf of the government, as Scott was just describing. And the, the question I have around that notion where we're adding more people to be doing investigations, for example, at that individual practice level. The, I guess the thing that when I mentioned that I got a chill from that conversation was that in most cases, those investigators are going to be incentivized around the money that they find right? They, they, they find, they uncover fraud. Accidental or not, they find fraud, they get paid. So what what prompts that investigation? I mean, can will will this team of people, because he talked about each state was going to be basically adding, and I don't remember what department they're going to be working for, but a number of investigators going to be dedicated to each state essentially to go root out this sort of either mistake that cost the government money or or nefarious conduct that cost the government money. What prompts that trigger? I mean, can they just say, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to start the A's in the phone book and start working my way through the practices until I find some fraud?
2: Well, one way it starts, and Jason could talk more about this part. One way it starts is a whistleblower. And these days, whistleblower litigation is becoming more and more common in part because whistleblowers are incentivized to bring cases. They have a financial benefit. If you file a case under the False Claims Act, as a whistleblower, you get anywhere between 15 and 30% of the eventual recovery, which is huge. <laughs> yes. um, and this is not at all Jason's firm because I have a lot of respect for Jason's firm and, and they do bring the good cases. Uh, but not everyone's like Jason's firm. There are uh, lawyers out there who don't necessarily draw lines in the sand as to what cases they might take and what cases they won't take. And let's be honest, some plaintiff lawyers are also financially incentivized to bring cases. They get part of the recovery as well, and they get attorney's fees. Um, so that's one way it starts. Whistleblowers and whistleblower litigation is increasing. Jason could talk more of that. But the other way that it starts, other ways that, they, that these investigations start, random audits. And mm-hmm. some are random, some are not. I said random audits, but I should have said audits. Um, some of the audits are random. If you are a uh, certain type of healthcare entity that's within the kind of um, the focus area of the government that year, you're going to get an audit. And it doesn't mean you necessarily did anything wrong, but you're going to get an audit. So a lot of the audits are simply random. But a lot of the audits now are based on a fairly sophisticated data analysis. And data analytics. The mm-hmm. government now has something called the fraud prevention system, which they're trying, they are rolling out, and they're continuing mm-hmm. to appro- improve. The way healthcare fraud and abuse enforcement has historically worked and still does work to a large extent is it's a pay and chase system. And what that means is that claims are submitted and they're paid. Unless you're on prepayment review or otherwise on the government's radar for some reason no matter what claims you're submitting, as long as they have the necessary information on the claim form, they're gonna get paid. And then at some point down the line, whether it's through a whistleblower or an audit, the government finds out that those claims shouldn't have been properly paid, so they open an audit, they open an investigation, and they spend money and time to try to get that back. Well, what the government's trying to do now is put a computer system into place where improper claims are caught as they're being submitted and denied instead of having to pay them and then chase the provider for the money later. So those are other ways that um, these investigations are, are starting to take place audits. And just like whistleblowers, some plaintiff's lawyers, contractors that work for Medicare or Medicaid are financially incentivized to find problems. All of the recovery contractors and the other CMS contractors that are in charge of running certain audits have contracts in place with CMS that incentivize them to find issues. They get a percentage of what they bring back. That's how they're, I mean, it's it's public knowledge. That's how they're compensated. Well, I hate to be, um, you know, a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not, but one doesn't have to suspend reality for too long to, maybe think that some of these contractors when there's a close call or a gray area they're erring on the side of taking money back mm-hmm. if that is how they get paid and the government actually has been putting some safeguards into place to prevent that situation from leading to abuse but you could imagine that um, you know a cahaba a palmetto Advanced Med, those types of Medicare contractors, if they're getting a percentage of what they bring back, they're going to work to try to find issues, even where those issues might not exist.
0: It's just like in the, the rule in tennis: when in doubt, call it out. <laughs> Want to win? Don't call in. Um, it sounds sort of like that sort of philosophy when it comes to those types of investigations. Now, Jason, I would expect when it comes to the the whistleblower side of things that. I'm sure that there's sometimes there's an aggravated employee that might blow the whistle on somebody on something that maybe, as you talked about, Scott, on the gray side of things, maybe or maybe not. They may know that there is a weakness in terms of documentation, for example, and they, they call it knowing that it might leave them exposed. But I would imagine that as much as anything that when a whistleblower raises a hand and says, hey, this is going on, that they're truly identifying something that's happening.
1: That's 100% correct. Our clients don't they're not in the practice and they see some non-compliance issue and they, you know, Mr. Burns style, think, ha, I've got them. <laughs> yes. um, they don't come to us and say, oh, I figured out a way that we're going to make a bunch of money. 99.9% of the time they saw something wrong. They went to their employer. They said, I think this is wrong and the employer blew them off. Then they come to us and say, I think this is wrong. more More often than not, not only did they blow them off, they got fired for, you know, crossing the doctor. You know, you don't want to, you know, if you're a nurse or a biller and you go to a doctor and say, I don't think you're doing this right. They don't take kindly to that. Right. Um, yeah. then loyalty issues come up. So they're usually pushed out of the practice. And at that point, often a lot of our clients come to us through employment lawyers, which is, I got fired. What do I do? And they say, I think you've got something more here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are not, you know, our clients, again, are not minimal compliance issues because they're not going to get fired over minimal compliance issues. And they're not going to you know, make a stink over those. So, um, very different situations for us. And I'm going to add one more way that people are getting caught these days is back in 2013, CMS started publish- publishing their billing data yep. and d- individual doctors and what codes they're billing to. Right. And there are actually data miners out there who are looking for cases. Um, and we've we've come across a few of those who are outsiders, have nothing to do with the practice.
0: And that's what I was going to ask you about was, I, I would assume that most people when they hear whistleblower, they think that it's somebody that's been associated as part of the practice, whether they're a, a provider or support staff, whatever the case may be, but presume that a, a whistleblower comes from XYZ organization mm-hmm. that is con- committing the fraud. But. As you're saying, nowadays, particularly with the, the, the publication of that data, I'm familiar with it. I've seen it. I've looked at competing practices. I came from a practice myself, and and I saw things, and I'm like, mm, I, both from community reputation, uh, but but it was backed up in the numbers. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask the question, uh, as it comes to the whistleblower side of things, if a practice, let's say there's two practices in the community, and practice A knows that practice B is up to some funny business do they become, or can they become a whistleblower?
1: They can, um, and it's it's becoming more common. And and you know Scott can speak to this, but I'm sure there are, are frivolous suits by competitive doctors who are just trying to push someone out. Again, as the way we operate is we operate on a contingency basis, so we only get paid if we win at the end of the day. We have no incentive to take those cases. We're not going to bring those you know frivolous lawsuits. But you know the incentive is out there with the data mining issue. Yeah, like you said, you're going to see, you're going to look at your neighbor and say, gosh, I bill the heck out of this code. How did they bill five times as much on this code? Exactly. And they're going to start asking questions. You know, it's, it's going to be, usually there's something legitimate there. But again, most of our clients are going to be insiders who have been wronged in some way, who just know better and were mistreated. You know, that's, that's your, your easiest way to get out of these cases, is if you treat your staff correctly and with respect. Well, obviously, if you do it the right way, then you don't have anything to worry about, really.
0: So, what on you know, following down the the rabbit hole of the whistleblower? I mean, what if I'm if if somebody calls in and says this practice is doing something wrong? I, I assume then that that what happens at that point? I mean, are the is the cavalry called out and they come in? They start pouring through your files. How, what what happens to determine which side that falls on? Are they just a are they just a competitor trying to beat the competition or are they somebody who is protecting the credibility of their specialty by saying, hey, this these folks over here are representing us poorly mm-hmm. by doing it the wrong way? How do you decide in that early stages before you just go digging into all the files and, and doing an audit?
1: Right. Well, I mean, for us, it's fairly easy because we don't have access to those files and we can't do an audit. If someone comes to us and says, I think they're doing wrong, we say, what evidence do you have? And they say, none. I've just, you know... I just don't think they're doing it right. We say, "All right, well, good luck." Now, we, you know, we're not in the practice of bringing cases to the government and saying, "We think there's something wrong here. Go see if you can find out." I see. I mean, frankly, there's just, you know, in all honesty, there's so much legitimate fraud being committed in the healthcare industry. We have more than enough to do without rooting out the little nonsense. Um, and and certainly um you know, we, uh, the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, which is uh, run by the Attorney General's office here, as well as the, you know, various district uh, at USA's offices, they're overwhelmed, especially the federal. They're not just doing healthcare fraud. They're doing housing fraud. They're doing defense contractor frauds. So we bring all kinds of cases. So they, they have more than enough to do. And if you bring something that's a hunch, they have an obligation to investigate, but they're not really, I mean, it's not their focus and you're wasting everybody's time. Um, you'd rather spend that time on real issues. So I think I forgot what your original question was. No, but... <laughs> it was,
0: well it was it was around the how do you decide how when someone calls you up and says hey I think this is going on. Right. Does that then open Pandora's box and you start digging through and there's like aha, I told right. you. Yes.
1: We we turn away far more cases than we take. It's, they're they're time consuming, they're expensive, we're not getting paid hourly. You know, we want cases where they come to us and say, we think there's something going wrong. In fact, we know there is. And here's some documentation that proves it. Now, they don't necessarily have to have documentation, but you have to believe your client and you have to feel like they know what they're talking about and that they have a legitimate case. You know, again, otherwise, just for business purposes, it's not worth, you know, filing and and seeing what happens.
0: Now, on the side of... As we've talked about in, in our conversation here, we've been talking with Scott Grubman and Jason Marcus, experts in the arena of fraud within the healthcare sector. Are you finding particular areas on on your side of things where, where, where we're in the whistleblower arena where someone's calling to say, hey, something is going wrong? Are you Where are you finding the lion's share of nefarious actions going down? Right.
1: Well, and, and I, I disagree with the concept that the trend is away from big healthcare into small healthcare. I think it's just as big in big health care as it's ever just been. Swelling
0: in just swelling into include the little guys. Exactly. <laughs>
1: um, I, I think in the next couple of days, I, I, you're going to see a giant settlement with Tenet that just came out. Unfortunately for your local fraudsters, Atlanta is just a hotbed of the best tam false claims act attorneys in the country. I don't know wh- <laughs>
0: how it happened that way. It's not that
1: this is a particularly great area for that. It just happened that way.
0: And for the person listening who's just not familiar with what tam is, what, oh. what is
1: that? Uh, is is any sort of case where you're bringing a uh, lawsuit on behalf of the government. So essentially, when we are representing a whistleblower, we're bringing a case both on behalf of the whistleblower and the United States. And that gives the United States a chance to investigate, decide if there's something there. Often they will decline the case and then we can prosecute and litigate that case on behalf of the government.
2: Let me also follow up because I, first of all, I don't want to get too far because I absolutely agree with what one thing Jason said, which is the best way for a healthcare provider not to come under scrutiny by a whistleblower is to take concerns that are brought up internally seriously, particularly for the larger practices that I represent, the hospitals that have more resources to have an internal compliance program, if one of your employees comes to you with a concern, unless you absolutely know it's just completely fabricated and, you know, they're, they're just, you know, for some reason making it up, which is a very rare situation, take it seriously. It doesn't mean necessarily that there's anything there, but you should look into it. You should create an atmosphere at your practice where folks feel comfortable coming to you with regulatory and compliance concerns. Whether or not you find anything is almost beside the point. It's letting them know that you're looking into it and if you do find something, you'll fix it. You'd be amazed how many KETAM false claims act cases could be prevented by just taking concerns seriously. And then second, as Jason said, don't fire someone for bringing up a concern. It's illegal, first of all, under the False Claims Act. There's a retaliation provision that could be tacked on to the substantive claims, but it's also just bad business because that person's gonna go hire a lawyer. <laughs> and if that person goes hire, goes and hires a lawyer that knows about the False Claims Act or knows a firm like Jason's that they could bring in to help with the False Claims Act case, you're gonna get sued it would have been a lot less expensive and easier just to take the concerns seriously. I also actually agree 100% with Jason that we described it incorrectly. It's not a move away from the focus on big healthcare to small healthcare. It's just now they're focusing on both.
0: Because they've got additional resources they've committed to the process.
2: Right. So now it's going to be Tenant and HCA and DaVita and Fresenius and all those other big companies, but it's also going to be Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones and the CEOs and CFOs and things of that nature. And it's no longer gonna be a situation where the big guys can foot the bill and write the big check and the investigation is over and everyone goes away, the individuals go away scot-free. So that's actually also a really good point. The one other thing I wanted to follow up on to address that you mentioned is this Pandora's box issue, which I think is an absolute, I know, I don't think, I know, it's, it's an issue, and I've seen it from the defense side, and I've seen it from the side of an assistant United States attorney um, investigating these types of things, is that there are uh, a number of cases that can be brought to the government's attention on some issue that either winds up not really being an issue or an issue that might be able to get resolved. And as the government is collecting documents and interviewing witnesses and investigating, Issue B and C and Mm -hmm. D and E and F come up. And those wound up being the issues (laughs) that kill you. Um, And in fact, Jason was himself involved in the matter that I was also involved on, where I believe that happened. And that's, I'm not, that's not. I would dispute that. (laughs) Well, he would dispute it. But there was a seven figure, uh, close to a seven figure settlement on an issue that literally was uh, contained in one paragraph of a 20-page complaint. And that's just a fact. I mean, that's that's that absolutely is what happened. And so there is a Pandora's box issue, and it goes back to what you talked about, which is any healthcare entity of any size, if the government comes in, opens the door, and looks in their closet, there could be some very significant issues. Stark and anti-kickback are the huge ones right now. Those are the you know, out of all my cases, and I have a lot of cases, I defend a lot of healthcare entities and providers. The vast majority have at least some stark and anti kickback component. I mean, I teach a class on healthcare fraud abuse at Georgia State where we could spend a whole semester just talking about these two things. But to give the kind of one minute synopsis, if that's even possible, both. Of the Stark Law and the anti kickback statute govern relationships between doctors and healthcare entities such as hospitals, where both entities get really in trouble. And this is a very dramatic oversimplification of a very complicated statutory scheme. But where they get in trouble is where physicians get paid too much money by a healthcare entity to which that provider sends referrals. So if a provider, a healthcare provider, is Uh, you know, works at some, you know, ABC hospital in town and sends a lot of patient referrals to the hospital, which of course they do because that's Mm -hmm. the nature of healthcare. And they get some sort of money back from the hospital, whether it's an employment contract, a medical directorship, whether it's space that they lease at the hospital, anything of value that comes back to the physician, that potentially implicates the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute. And that's where in my personal practice, I'm seeing a lot of focus right now. Both of those laws, the Stark Law and the Anti-Kickback Statute, are predicates to False Claims Act liability. So if you violate one of those statutes, you have also violated the False Claims Act. And those two statutes in particular, even for a small healthcare entity, even for an individual provider, can lead to such huge liability that it's just devastating and potentially career ending. So those are really, if, if providers could pay attention to two things and read about two things or you know, hire a lawyer to advise them on two things, those are the two things. Stark law, the anti-kickback statute, knowing the rules and regulations as they relate to those two statutory schemes and making sure that you don't even come close to running afoul to one of those things.
0: So when it comes to the the Stark law and anti-kickback rules and regulations, how often do you see it where it's a situation, as you mentioned, Dr. Jones is given a medical directorship position with the hospital and and they say the contract is good. We had our, our attorneys look at it. I mean, how often do you find where it was kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of the show where... Maybe they just didn't look as deep as they should have. Uh, Maybe the attorney that reviewed it wasn't particularly the stark expert that they should be, whatever the case may be. And and it was not a trying to get away with it kind of situation, but doesn't really matter, I guess, in the end.
2: The vast majority of the time, there are um, people who do try to get away with it and intentionally do wrong. The anti-kickback statute, for example, is a criminal statute. It's a felony statute. It carries with it the potential of five years in prison and a fine. Um, But the vast majority of anti-kickback statute enforcement is done in the civil arena through the False Claims Act now. But for those folks who are intentionally violating the anti-kickback statute, then they have issues potentially leading to the federal penitentiary. Um, And then we're on a, a whole nother level. And that does happen. I have a number of those matters right now. There's a number of fairly large ones going on in Atlanta on the criminal side. However... The vast majority are folks like you just alluded to. They really didn't think about it. They should have maybe, um, and a lot of times that's enough to have some liability, but they didn't think about it. By the way, the Stark Law in particular is a strict liability statute. It doesn't matter if you had zero intent. It doesn't matter if you had nothing but the best of intentions. If you violated it, you violated it, period, and it could lead to significant consequences. Now. This is going to sound like somewhat of an advertisement, but it's not. It's, it's the truth. I have seen so many situations arise on the starker anti-kickback issues where there was some sort of contract that was put into place and reviewed by the local lawyer, the lawyer that they used for their real estate closing right. or their will. I mean, it happens all the time, all the time. What I explain to physicians is the following if i had a heart issue and i thought i needed you know heart surgery i would imagine most physicians would tell me not to go to a podiatrist or an orthopedic surgeon (laughs) but go to a cardiologist yeah i could think of a hundred of those examples that's the same way in the law the lawyer uh, non-lawyers think a lawyer is a lawyer is a lawyer it's just not true it's just not true so a lot of times people do get in trouble even if they have the best of intentions but the best way to stay off the government's radar at least hope to stay off the government's radar is to make sure you're spending some time and money on the front end to make sure you're being compliant what i always tell people is this and this is just my line and and i believe it 100% to be true if you're a healthcare provider entering into uh, an arrangement with a hospital, or you're a hospital entering into an arrangement with a healthcare provider, pay a lawyer now or pay a lawyer later. But at some point, you're going to pay a lawyer. And if it's later, it's going to be a lot more money, because guess who's going to be on the other side? Jason <laughs> and the United States Department of Justice and the OIG.
1: I'll, I'll go ahead and advertise for Scott, too, because I, I completely agree. Um, there's no question that the that Stark and anti Kickback is the trend. Um, when you're seeing hun- multi-hundred-million-dollar settlements in healthcare, it's probably a stark and anti-kickback case. Um, and he was speaking about going after the individuals earlier. Um, the government is not only going after the hospital, they're going after the doctors that contracted with the hospital. And, and he mentioned local lawyers. What, what we're finding a lot of is essentially lawyers who are nothing more than paid experts. Um, they might be the top stark law lawyer in the world, and if this hospital wants them to say something, then they're going to say something and then they provide it to the doctors, and the doctors say, gosh, this guy really knows what he's talking about. This must be safe. I would never rely on that opinion. Um, I would I would 100% hire your own independent counsel, review that contract, um, and frankly, it's wonderful for me because if your counsel says this is a Stark Law violation, and then they go to someone else, we have your counsel's letter saying that, you know, it's a Stark Law violation, so it's, it's great. That's our, our Possibly my favorite piece of evidence is a uh, lawyer opinion that they simply ignored. <laughs> um, but there's also, there's also a line of case law that they go to, again, they go to the Stark Law experts, and maybe they didn't give them the entire story. And, and the courts are finding you can't rely on that. There's no defense here. You didn't give them all the facts. What he said was not a Stark Law violation is not the same as what we're looking at here. And we've, we have a couple of cases like that. And the DOJ is just plowing through. They don't care that they have an attorney opinion because they think the attorney opinion was, was either false or um, misleading in some way. So absolutely, you need to hire your own counsel for that.
0: So if, if a lot of what gets me into trouble, one, we talked about the fact that treating my employees well and listening to them when they raise concerns that there may be issues that are getting us sideways with regulations and laws. Um, clearly, that's a, a great way. I mean, it keeps us from getting sued by our patients when we treat our patients great and have great relationships with them and their family. So it plays, plays into the same situation in the practice itself with support staff who are raising their hand saying, hey, I think we've got a problem here we might need to take a look at. But when a lot of the issues also, as we talked about uh, at the at the jump was related to just poorly complying with the regulations without necessarily realizing that's what's happening. How do you, How do those types of practices who, who are going to be exposed to the audits that you talked about that are coming? Um, oh, geez, it was your day today and now the Pandora's box begins to open. I mean, is there some advice? Because, I mean, honestly, this this conversation is kind of a downer in a way. If I'm a physician <laughs> listening, I'm yep. just like, geez, I mean, the world is swelling up against me here. Right. Um, My job is done. Yeah, that's right. How do I... Yeah, good job, how, how do I, as a, as a practice, protect myself when I'm not under an audit, nobody's raising their hands to say I've got a problem, how do I give myself some measure of assurance that... I'm trying to do the right thing. And it can be clearly documented that maybe the, the box doesn't swing open so wide when they come, come knocking.
2: First of all, hire the people you need to hire internally and externally. Here's what I mean by that. I have so many clients who are either under government investigations for some sort of false or fraudulent claims or just uh, any type of audit that they, for instance, this is a phenomenon you see all the time, who does your billing? My wife, my husband, you know, my sister. Oh, what, what school did they go to for billing? What sort of billing training do they have? None. That's a problem. You need to have educated and trained staff submitting your bills, period. I personally have a number of physician clients whose wife or sister or <laughs> husband or grandmother submits the claims, have no training. So that's number one. Have a well-trained uh, staff hire uh, the right outside people, whether it's lawyers, consultants. I mean, there is a whole cottage industry of healthcare consultants, and you get even more specific. Billing consultants, coding consultants, documentation consultants. I know that gets expensive, and I'm not telling you to go hire everyone, but you gotta have the right outside people. Uh, like we talked about in terms of contracting, things of that nature, hire a lawyer and hire a healthcare lawyer, not the lawyer that you know did your closing on your house. But you know, in healthcare right now, there's never, there's not going to be a way to completely stay off the radar. There's just not. Whether it's a false claims act case, whether it's a just a, an audit, something like that, it's going to happen at some point. You are going to be asked questions by some sort of government entity. Although that's not necessarily a pleasant thing, it is the risk of doing business in healthcare these days. It used to be that medical malpractice was the thing everyone worried about, and of course, we all still worry about it, but medical malpractice claims have seen a drastic decrease over the last number of years. Doctors and other healthcare entities are winning medical malpractice cases. That's another thing. You don't necessarily win in a government investigation. Yeah. I have to explain to my clients early on to manage their expectations. A win isn't that the government's going to go away with a written apology letter and, and and that's it. A win is keeping the cost down, but the vast majority of these cases do wind up in some sort of financial settlement.
0: That's what I'm hearing. I, I don't that's, see how you can avoid it.
2: You can't. And here's... The other thing that I wanted to say, based on what Jason said, and it's a good answer to your question too, I hear so many people in the healthcare industry, they wanna go do something, enter into some sort of arrangement or do something that might be questionable in terms of regulatory and compliance. And what they say is, no, it's okay, because I know that this really big entity over here is doing the same thing, right? <laughs> and I hear it all the time, as 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 um, recent as yesterday. So and you're I'm saying, not exaggerating, but they're
0: doing it too. They're doing it too. That's not a good. That's not a good defense.
2: Well, for example, <laughs> and I'm not picking on them at all, but it's just an easy example. If you were in the dialysis business, the nephrology business, and something like that and you wanted to enter in some sort of arrangement and you were deciding whether it's an arrangement that's compliant, you don't want to pay your own lawyer to tell you because that costs money, so you're just kind of looking at what other people. You would think you might look to someone like Davida and say, okay, Davida. I mean, clearly they have the $1,000 an hour lawyers all across the country, um, in-house counsel. If they're doing it, clearly it it's gonna be okay. Well, Davida just in the last couple of years, has paid over half a billion dollars in False Claims Act settlements and probably another another many hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees for things of this nature. So don't assume that because some big entity or some other entity is doing something one way, that that's a compliant way. It's not necessarily true and it's not going to be a defense when the government or Jason comes knocking and you're facing a false claims Act case
0: been getting some excellent information for our physician listeners out there on how to begin to protect themselves uh, as best they can against the audit um, and uh, God forbid the whistleblower um, with Jason Marcus and Scott Grubman and you know I'm curious is this sort? is this Anything like the, the NCAA where uh, I self-report, I, I went and got a consultant, they came in, they identified some weaknesses in my compliance that were not nefarious, that I just was doing something incorrectly. I assume that means that I got to stroke a check back to somebody to, to pay back some funds right. as much as that makes me want to grit my teeth. But if I do that, let's say I get proactive and I bring in an expert who can review things for me that's not the government, that's not an auditor that's a consultant that's doing the audit and they find some things and I self-report, does that also throw open Pandora's box or do they say, oh, Ole Miss, you, you reported that you did some recruiting violations and you kept yourself out of the bowl game this year, so we're good to go. We're happy with that. How, how does that flow in, in this space?
2: Well, I'm going to give you the lawyerly answer, but it's absolutely the correct answer. It depends. And it really does <laughs> depend. If you come to find out that there might be some sort of issue in terms of the way you've been billing something or some other sort of compliance issue, the government does incentivize you and encourage you and the law requires you to uh, self-report and to repay any overpayments. As far as part of the Affordable Care Act, so it's been officially the law for a number of years now, although, it was literally last week or two weeks ago where it was actually finalized, there's something called the 60-day rule. And what the 60-day rule in very quick synopsis says is if you are a healthcare provider that comes to identify any sort of overpayment for any reason, it could be completely innocent reason. Let's say the, the Medicare intermediary that that pays you, just put an extra zero. It had nothing to do with anything you did. If you identify that overpayment, you have 60 days from the date of identification to report and refund to the proper government entity. If you don't do that, then you have, regardless of what else you have done, violated the False Claims Act, and then all the bad things that we've talked about uh, come into play. So you are required by law to do that. So what that means is you cannot bury your head in the sand, be willfully ignorant, because that doesn't matter. You still would have violated the False Claims Act. But if you find something, you report it to the government. It depends on the situation, but there are ways to report and refund it to limit your exposure. If you report and refund it Uh, You will have to pay it back, and there, in fact, there are some times where you might have to pay a little bit of penalty back on top of that, and that stinks, I know, but it's a lot better than the potential consequences of getting caught not doing it, and in this day and age, with the increase of data analytics, open payments, whistleblower, whistleblower lawyers, you are a lot more likely than you used to to get caught if you just uh, turn a blind eye to potential overpayment. So, repay the money. Uh, work with a lawyer, and you can, in certain situations, and often do, get a release from the government to where if a whistleblower does come afterwards and try to follow a case, um, in certain situations, this is not true for everything, but in certain situations, you get a release from certain unlawful conduct to where that might kind of gut the whistleblower's case. Doesn't mean all the time, but... You have to be proactive, and if you find a potential overpayment, work to figure out how much you were overpaid, work to repay it, or regardless of anything you've done, you have now violated the False Claims Act, and the government will come after you if they find out.
0: Well, I'm really happy that we've had you guys join us in the studio today because it's I think very interesting, I think it's very troubling in a way, but for our physician listeners out there, our physician management, uh, practice management listeners out there, clearly times are changing, things are getting serious with regards to trying to eliminate being out of compliance with regulations or worse, being uh, out of compliance with the law, whether on purpose or accidentally, and they're really starting to commit serious resources behind identifying it and not only recuperating uh, the, the the monies that were paid, but also bearing some penalties that can be as as Scott was saying, very significant to not only my checkbook but my ability to earn. So it's very 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 serious. And so as these gentlemen were were recommending for our listeners get something proactive start to have some some meetings and some conversations with your legal representation make make sure that the folks that are consulting with you on your practice and it's set up and how you're conducting things are experts in the field of compliance and and healthcare law so that you can identify problems get them ferreted out on your own uh, and identified and shored up before someone comes calling because there are some motivated people that are probably going to be knocking sometime in the relatively near future. It's just a fact. And, and hoping that it's not going to happen doesn't sound like you know, you're going to really be able to avoid that spotlight for very long. That's right. So where do folks go to get information about your individual practices so that they can potentially call on you to draw on your expertise if they need to?
2: Well, for me, um, my firm's website, again, my firm's called Chilevis, Cochran, Larkins, and Beaver. Uh, my firm's website is cclblawyers.com, Lawyers.com. You could also email me at sgrubman at cclblaw.com or call me at 404-262-6505.
1: And you can reach me at fcacouncil.com. Um, we're here in Atlanta, 770-988-5035. Um, and just to briefly touch on your very last point, um, again the the fca is designed to go after people who bury their heads in the sand, and if you have documented that you are trying to do the right thing i don't want that case so that is your best defense
0: pay attention when someone raises their hand and says hey uh, I think we may be sideways with the with the law or with the regulations here, and we need to fix it. So make sure that you do that. If you're coming back and you're checking out the podcast, make sure you go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives, and you can subscribe to us. So that way, each week when the new podcast comes out, it gets downloaded straight to your device, ready for the drive to work, uh, walking the dog, whatever the case may be for you. And like we were saying, Please take this topic very seriously. It is serious, and it's coming uh, to to a practice near you um, in the very near future. So be ready for it. I'm hopeful that uh, that our folks out there really pay attention to this and and get themselves the appropriate advice that would save them lots of heartache and, and hopefully uh, avoid some significant financial and possibly even criminal issues around that. So guys, thanks so much for taking some time. And I, uh, we might have to have you back again because I, I think we only kind of scratched the surface on some of this stuff. So uh, I really you. appreciate you making the time to to be here. Thanks, C.W. And uh, to Tom Cornegay and uh, Donald Pomisano, Susan Moore, all those folks over at Medical Association of Georgia, I want to say thank you very much for being our partner here with the Top Docs Radio show and all the folks out there who took time to check us out today we want to say thank you very much we appreciate your time we'll see you all same time same place next week we'll see you then